I'm here with Nancy Campbell, who is a Scottish poet and book artist who is currently a literature fellow at the International Artist House Villa Concordia in Bamberg, Germany. Between 2010 and 2017, she undertook a series of residencies with Arctic and Scandinavian museums to research cultural shifts and climate crisis in the North. Her books include The Library of Ice, Readings from a Cold Climate, Disco Bay, and How to Say I Love You in Greenlandic. In 2018 and 19, Nancy was a UK Canal Laureate, and poems from this period appear in Navigations, forthcoming from Happenstance this spring. So thank you for joining me, Nancy, and welcome to Stanza. Um, and I'm going to start by, by quoting a passage from your prose work, The Library of Ice. Um, and so in it you write, It's hard not to get lyrical about snow, which falls so gently that it seems to slow down time. Hail speeds up time like strobe lighting does a pantomime. And later in the book you ask, What is it about cold places anyway? Um, and you mentioned bumping into a friend who says, or friends who say, I thought you were somewhere cold. <laughs> and, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what drew you to ice, cold and snow, and to Greenland in particular. Thanks, Anna. <laughs> yes, I'll try and cover that. Um, it's funny, I feel like in some ways, because of the Library of Ice, um, my work is framed as traveling and mm. I'm framed as a travel writer mm. um, and these parties I ended up at in London where people said aren't you somewhere else <laughs> I always felt like um, that there were, I was I maybe had a doppelganger that was wandering around the north um, I haven't done a lot of travel I've spent two seasons in Greenland summer and winter and I've kept going back in between to Iceland because of a kind of fascination with that landscape and Iceland being slightly more manageable, certainly in economic terms, to get to. Um, what drew me to the north originally was a search for a home, actually. I was living in London, I was working as um, an, uh, an antiquarian bookseller, and my special field was dealing in literary archives, so I was looking after the work of people like Pinter before it was sold on to, to major institutions. And it seemed to me that um, these stories were being looked after and kept safe in libraries, and yet the world outside the ice itself, in all the newspaper reports, it was really apparent that there was a major crisis happening. Mm. So this is all over the last decade, really, in which um, climate change has become much more recognised mm. by the media. Mm. Um, I, di I didn't want to continue as a book dealer, I wanted to write, and as it was seemed to be impossible to do that and pay rent on a property in London. Mm -hmm. I applied to do a residency <coughs> at a small museum in Greenland, um, it, which calls itself the most northern museum in the world. It's an anthropological museum. Um, so a collection of artefacts from that have been discovered under the ice in the Arctic from past civilizations. And I spent a winter there and really became utterly fascinated with um, the life of the people on the island and how they related to the ice. 
It didn't start as a as a project that would go on for ten years and would keep taking me away from <laughs> my home, but it provided another sense of a centre for me. I'd grown up in the Scottish borders. I'd never really been. I'd lived in New York and and in London, but I'd never really felt grounded there. Mm. And um, going back to live among small coastal fishing communities actually felt very much like the. Um, the, the St. Abbs in Berwickshire and places I knew mm. and I, I found I could relate to the people mm. there mm. And, and their lifestyle um, so maybe it's not so much just about life but about the the, the, the space away from the from mm. the centre So the Library of Ice was published several years after Disco Bay um, which is your poetry collection and as the blurb notes the poem's transport the reader to the frozen shores of Greenland. Um, and reading both in tandem, I sort of felt the links between the two, so sort of their interest in conversation and human interaction, the relationship between humans and their environments. Um, and I was wondering how you envisaged the relationship between your poetry and your prose, and if one informs the other. So if, for example, the, the kind of close looking of poetry informs the prose or whether the structures of the prose somehow find their way into the poems somehow. Yes, that's a really interesting discussion, isn't it? And um, there are so many of us who work across different forms at different times and according to different uh, subject matters. In this case, I've really approached the same subject matters from a variety of different angles, almost in a sort of mirrorable mm -hmm. way. Um, because, because the subject of ice and climate change and the North preoccupied me so much. I sort of wanted to unpack it in at different levels. And um, the collection Disco Bay came out of, a, in some ways, a sense of obligation. I, I'd been funded by the Arts Council to go to Greenland, and my, my project was um, a collection of poems about ice. Mm. So that sort of gave shape to what I did there. Um, I also had the obligation to make a work for the community on the island that I would leave behind. And I made an artist book, How to Say I Love You in Greenlandic. So these two projects were working in parallel because I, um, I realised that for a community who, who speak Greenlandic and Danish, a collection of poetry in English wouldn't be a very um, welcome offering. Mm. Um, How to Say I Love You in Greenlandic is a concrete poem, alphabet book with very few words and quite a strong visual element. And over the ensuing decade I've made about seven other publications, some more visual than others, in relationship to the North. One is entirely photographic, it's called um, Vantar Missing and it's about avalanche um, deaths in Iceland. Um, and then the prose. And I've always written essays. I'm really interested in the more experimental mm. form of the essay and, and how um, my poetic sensibility can, can move into prose in a way. Mm -hmm. And um, the prose book is really a summation of all the projects that came before it. And it's called The Library of Ice for various reasons. Um, partly because I visited a lot of libraries during the course of writing it. But in a way, it's also a secret home for all my other projects, and I do 
quite obliquely reference the writing of poems and the um, printing of some of the books in it, just as almost hints that readers can pick up on that there's other activity going on. Because it's a little bit, as well as being a cultural history, it's also a little bit of a, a memoir of my own exploration. Mm. I think I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it, actually. The, the bits where you talk about the research that you're doing or where you're sort of tucked in a corner reading, sort of documenting that experience and process was nice. <laughs> um, and a, a question about poems. Um, so T.S. Eliot speaks about how poems for him sort of begin as rhythms and he talks about um, how a poem or a passage of a poem may tend to realise itself first as a particular rhythm before it reaches expression in words. Um, and I wondered if this rings true for you at all and whether when you're writing there's a rhythmic impulse, a sort of listening that comes first, or whether, I mean, you've, you've talked about um, sort of having the sense of what your poetry collection would be about before you wrote it. Does it come from more of an ideas place or a sort of research place first? Mm. Um, I, I'm very interested in rhythm and uh, I love um, writing formal verse ever since I, I um, did Mimi Calvati's poetry school course um, so um, but that comes second for me the first thing is the idea and um, it's almost like a, like the way a snow crystal develops right it starts from a, a tiny cell of ice and then it grows outwards um, and if the idea takes good shape, um, then maybe I will start to put it into language and then the language takes on a rhythm. Um, I just discovered recently actually that some snow, people who study the shape of snowflakes um, realise that some snowflakes are not as beautiful as the ones that were photographed by William Bentley, you know, those lovely black and white <laughs> images that were taken in, um, in America in the early days of photography. And I love the idea that, that, as well as all these perfectly symmetrical snowflakes that we, we are aware, aware of, there are also all these s snowflakes that didn't have the same aesthetic standards, <laughs> but sort of ended up in the snowdrift. So, yeah, I'm quite interested in failure in, in poetry, actually, mm. in my work. The subject of failure, and then there's, all those, there's always failed poems, aren't there? there there's, there's one, I think, living, um, I met a sheep farmer once as a, as a, as a teen, teenager in Northumberland and he said to me in a very wise way that the most important um, lesson was how to fail. And um, when I was living on a Pernavik, um, um, there you know, and, and talking to the, the hunters there about the way their lifestyle was changing because of climate change and... Um, there was a sort of embedded sense of potential failure anyway when you're trying to um, get your food by this very tenuous method of, of hunting rather than just going to a supermarket which will have what you need. Um, but, but also there was the, the possibility of failure in terms of people um, dying because of the ice changing and the difficulty of understanding what, how to behave in relation to it. Mm -hmm. I wrote a poem about it actually, which is um, there's a sequence about a um, a, a legendary figure called Kuyavasuk, 
who uh, lived at a time when there was too much ice. And he um, went hunting every day and he was strong and a good man. And um, yet even he, because of the environmental changes at, at this time, couldn't catch seals anymore. So I wrote a bit of a sequence about what it might mean to, to come home empty-handed from your work. Mm. And thinking a little bit more about climate change, um, I'm going to quote you. <laughs> this was an interview for The List, and you said that the present state of the world shows that we urgently need to imagine a new way of being, and while poets can't directly make policy, they can certainly be part of a desire to imagine and communicate better or alternative futures. Do you see your writing as sort of grappling very directly with these, I mean, questions, and, and, and do you think this is part of a, a movement? Do you see other poets who are sort of writing in similar ways or, or starting to process things in a similar way? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's such an energising topic. How, how, can, how can one not be concerned? And, and if writing is what you do mm. want to address this somehow. I don't think I write very... Um, I, I do write very directly about the subject matter actually, maybe what I try to do is um, just bring my, my witnessing of, of ice as a material and, and, and sort of fascination with the science into, into a public realm. And then I, I feel that the, certainly now the discussions of climate change are so present in the media that one doesn't need to tell that story mm. so much in poetry or, or that my, my work can exist alongside those larger narratives and you know I'm not a scientist and I'm, I'm not um, engaged in the day-to-day -day arguments about policy making mm -hmm. um, I think I get a bit lost in that I lose poetry in that and I want to keep an eye on the mm. on the truth of the poem mm. um, I'm really excited by um, the amount of work that's being made on the subject now, though, and it's really, I think that also takes the onus of, of polemic off your shoulders, right, because there are many voices all, mm -hmm. all, all writing to this same um, subject, and, um, well, there's a Poets for the Planet mm -hmm. movement, which is great. And this, uh, also, inter interestingly, really, um, you know, making a huge difference in terms of fundraising as well as writing around a subject. And I, I think that organisationally, that, that works very well. And then individuals maybe pursuing work in a more private way, like um, the poet Nick Drake, mm -hmm. whose book, The Farewell Glacier, is um, a, a sort of a, a, a monologue, a long poem um, spoken by by Voices of the Arctic, and this was the result of a, a research residency did on a ship to Cape Farewell, mm -hmm. I think about a decade ago now. And his latest collection is also with Bloodaxe, Out of Range, is really um, brilliant and sort of addresses very wittily um, topics like plastic pollution. So again, there's a poem spoken by uh, a plastic water bottle. Mm -hmm. um, and I think well, maybe poets can, by making strange these artefacts or 
or ideas, maybe they can sow a seed in people's minds. But then again, as poets, we're speaking to a relatively small audience. I suppose moving, moving from ice to water, I wanted to ask about the time you spent as the, the UK um, Canal Laureate, uh, and this is a project managed by the Poetry Society and the Canal and River Trust, and what this experience was like and what sort of work came out of it, and I suppose how you went about writing these poems as well. Mm-hmm. In some ways, working with uh, water was um, a natural follow-on from my work in Greenland because I'd taken up kayaking as a result of um, studying kayaks in, in the north. And um, I found that the kayak was the perfect way of um, moving around the waterways and uh, actually um, getting close to people, getting close mm-hmm. to boats, being on a level with nature. Um, so a lot of my poems were sort of, I don't tend to take a pen and a pencil, out, pen, and pa- pencil and paper out with me, just a paddle. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would be writing in my head and then scribbling down later. The theme of the Canal and River Trust for the year I was working with them was um, wellness. And um, I think as someone who in the past hasn't always done a lot of sport, this was something I could really get behind. Mm -hmm. Um, As a writer, I find the more I get out in between desk work, the, the more um, the better my other work is. Mm-hmm. So um, I was enjoying promoting this message and 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 sort of finding ways to interpret not only the landscape but also this idea for and also for a very general audience. Mm-hmm. It's quite um, astonishing to see um, some of the effects of the poems. So there was one that was um, stenciled at Canary Wharf. Mm-hmm. On the, on the bricks so that anyone who's working in the office, high office blocks has a moment of poetry can, can see and um, I love this actually this potential for taking poetry beyond the page as well mm-hmm. um, also I worked with a letterpress printer to, in, um, to create a broadside so red plate press in near Hepton Bridge mm-hmm. obviously there's a canal that runs um, through that area so he was quite closely connected anyway and he did um, um, a beautiful rendition in wood type of a poem I, um, I wrote about kayaking and actually I stopped off to work with him halfway through a seven day paddle I did along the Leeds and Liverpool Canal and, and sort of thinking about movement and, and sort of I like this idea of being on a level with nature um, one of your poems has, has sort of dragonflies flitting about the boat and that feels very much like you're sort of right in among them. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you about travelling. Um, so in the poem Veidling, if that's how you pronounce it. Veidling. Um, Veidling. Veidling. Ah, okay. Um, you write, I have learned to navigate new cities quickly, one of the odd skills you acquire from living in too many of them. Um, and I wondered if travel and change is a fuel for your writing, sort of the state of flux, um, or the you know it's been for other reasons. Um, and I, I also wanted to ask about the the residency itself, the idea of a residence, residency, and, and whether you find this sort of sometimes quite compact, intense time conducive to writing. 
Yes, there's a real pressure to uh, create um, something when you're only going to be in place for a month, right? It gives, it gives um, a boundary to your days. And, and I think also the stimulus of um, being in a new environment, both, you know, takes one's fortunate to be taken away from daily preoccupations maybe, but also there's some... Um, there's a wonderful Icelandic saying which translates as the visitor sees things with a clear eye and I think that's a, that intensity mm-hmm. when you go to a new place mm-hmm. of looking and a sort of hunger to discover mm-hmm. um, more. Um, in terms of travel, I, I, um, I had a really peripatetic childhood actually. I think I moved um, schools and homes about 20 times before I was 15. So um, really, uh, well, not schools, but certainly the housing situation was a bit mm. precarious. Mm. So um, I think in a way I've got into this almost habitual rolling motion of being unable to settle down mm. and feeling a bit threatened by a settled existence. Mm. Um, and going back to m- my first residency in Greenland, it was a, an attempt to, to find a means to to be in place in a way that I could support myself financially and and find time to write too. And for me, you know, without without any caring responsibilities actually, a residency has a, has been a um, or a series of residencies have been a good way to to find time and space to work. Mm-hmm. And um, initially having to seek independent funding and then more recently maybe the residencies come with funding, which I feel very fortunate to have had. Yeah. Finally, um, I wanted to ask what you're working on at the moment and if you have plans for future projects. Um, and also maybe if you could do a residency anywhere else in the world where, where you might do it. I'm working on a, a book about snow and um, different um, international approaches to snow and snow in different languages. That's a, a commercial project really, it's a, a book that's going to be published by Elliot and Thompson uh, this winter and um, in terms of poetry I'm, uh, that's taken me away from a sequence I was writing while I was in Bamberg in Germany which was about the, the rivers in Bamberg and the bridges across them and um, I really hope once I submit the snow manuscript in the next couple of weeks I can return to the poems because some of the um, the Canal and River Trust work and looking at waterways in the UK really led me on to um, skim, skim the surface in a way and, and I started to really um, get quite excited by the possibilities of, of, of writing about water so, so this is something I'm still very much playing with. Mm-hmm. And I thought we could finish with a few poems. Um, so I've picked out a few. Um, the first one is quite a short poem, and I will pass it over to you. So this comes from Disco Bay, and it is one of a series of versions I made of Greenlandic songs. I was very struck by the um, strong, legendary female figures and um, the power of their voices and wanted to see if I could convey this in the English language. Mm. Song 
of Erla Versiniok, a female shaman known as the robber of men's intestines. Nali katak sapangal sapangalin kivakin given sapangal sapangalin. My cunt is hung, hung with sea urchins. My cunt bursts, bursts with bladder wreck. My cunt drips, wet as a walrus snout. My cunt is hungry. <laughs> there is a lot of power in that. <laughs> Actually, when that, that was first published in a, online in, in a US um, uh, magazine, and I, there was a lot of um, vitriolic comments about the fact that I yes. shouldn't have used that yeah. word. Um, but for me, as a in terms of translation, it, mm. it, it seemed mm. to evoke the power and yeah. also an ownership yeah. of the body, yeah. actually. Yeah. There's a, an interesting um, Zadie Smith short story in her collection that's just appeared where there's a discussion around sort of the language we use um, during intercourse. So things that the, the female character is saying, well, it should be I enveloped him, I took him in, I swallowed him up, he was, I drew him so deeply inside myself that he was gone. <laughs> yes. and, and it's not like that. So, so I, that's what I sort of enjoyed about this poem was the feeling of sort of um, agency with it and the refusal to kind of shy away from this Mm -hmm. Just talking directly about mm. about it. There's yeah. another there's another poem in there in which um, another of these versions in in which the the shaman is using her clitoris as a weapon. Yes. To kill people. <laughs> yes. So I think you know this is kind of interesting. This this sort of the, the female violence, yeah. gendered violence. Yeah. yeah. The next poem is is also a very short one from Disco Bay, um, and I really enjoyed the repetition, the sort of the coming in again of this line about the the fish um so if you could read this one that would be wonderful. yeah and i just want to briefly say that um the first section of the book all the poems are titled in both greenlandic and english mm -hmm. and this is because i was working quite a lot with the an, a very old greenlandic english dictionary in the museum um using it as a research tool as well as an interpretive aid and it seemed to me that it was a sort of acknowledgement of that culture at the back of the work. So this is called Arsak, Summer Song. We'll feast on roseroot and bitter dandelion, stems of fresh green angelica, fine, fresh angelica found in the shade. Dried capelin, dried cod and grey matak, a feast of fish and fruit to make us fat. Those smoky silver fish will make us fat. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I thought we could finish on a poem um, which which came out of your canal laureateship um, and speaks about the world of weeds and, and wires. And it has this, this closing dragonfly image that we've sort of spoken a little bit about. Yeah, this one, this is the one that came from that very long paddle that I did. And it was summer 2018, so it was a, a very serious drought in the UK. 
the short story of a long paddle on the Leeds and Liverpool Canal. On the first day, the water was so low it was a challenge to climb down from the scorched towpath into my boat. The water no longer lapped the beams of the swing bridges and I could glide easily under them. On the second day, the water was lower and the green life that drifts upon it, the bright leaves of the fringe lilies, duckweed colonies and clumps of algae, mingled with the eelgrass that roots deep in the silt. On the third day, it rained for an hour and I pulled my hood up and paddled on. The water was dark and still in the shelter of the old stone bridges and the canal stretched ahead of me, hushed and pitted with silver stars. On the fourth day, approaching the city, my hull scraped on objects sunk and long forgotten and I steered round rusting hints of bikes and shopping trolleys. I met three children, one net between them, fishing frogs and newts from a world of weeds and wires. On the fifth day, the radio reported a hosepipe ban in the northwest. There was drawdown from the reservoir and more dry weather forecast. Boats waited at the high locks, then passed through two abreast, exchanging news and saving water. On the sixth day, the water gauge slipped into red. A few cyclists braved the noon heat, their swift wheels raising dust on the towpath. Ahead of my boat, dragonflies darted through their last brittle hours. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you Susan, for coming and talking. <laughs>